0: so generally the outside world it's they're obsessed with what can't be done rather than what could be done i mean this was one this passport scheme was one opportunity where they could have got behind it pushed it and actually i think saved honestly i think saved thousands of people uh, in the process but they didn't for bureaucratic reasons i think to some extent you have to say probably at one level anti-semitic reasons as well <laughs>
1: Hello and welcome to this week's pod. My name is Oliver Webb Carter and today's guest is Roger Morehouse, the author of a new book, The Forgers, and he's joined me to talk about the Holocaust and the efforts of a few Polish diplomats to get victims out. They set up a passport scheme in Switzerland and sent passports to Jews in camps to get them out, all the while battling with the bureaucracies of the West, as you heard from Roger at the top there. Do get in touch with me if you have any comments or suggestions. Coming up, I've got plenty more great history, including a bonus with a former cabinet minister discussing the coalition government, Elizabeth I, the Dark Ages, and Tom Holland joins to talk Roman history and other history-related questions. Please do share the pod with your friends. It really helps to grow. Thanks very much for listening, but that's enough from me. I'll hand you over to me, talking to Roger Morehouse on the Holocaust. Roger Morehouse welcome back to the podcast last time we had you on it was you gave us a little bit of a trailer to what we're going to be talking about today which is your new book your latest book The Forgers the forgotten story of the holocaust's most audacious rescue operation Mm -hmm. um, which is which is now out and so thanks so much for joining my pleasure Ollie and yeah, as I say, when we did our Books of the Year chat, yeah. you were just explaining a little bit more about your book. Mm-hmm. But I think if we're all honest, we had a few that day. So I've completely <laughs> forgotten what what you were talking
0: about. <laughs> yeah.
1: But luckily, I've been reading the book. So, Excellent. I yeah, w- which we would just you say. You probably before, know
0: more about it than I do at the moment.
1: Well... Listeners, just before we started recording, I was uh, just saying how much I was enjoying this book. Very readable, and it's also—I mean, there's so much in it, particularly around the Holocaust. So it's obviously a very dark subject. And I and I wanted to to start off by asking you, Roger, because your book opens with a a conference, a global conference in, I think, the summer of 1938 Mm -hmm. in Evian on on Lake Geneva in France, and there seems to be—and I wanted really to ask you about the kind of the attitude or the the global environment there was um about jews particularly jews in nazi germany who are obviously yeah. looking for we, we're, we're post kristallnacht and so they're looking for a way out and what what, what was the well, not,
0: it, it, in the summer of 38 we're not yet post kristallnacht because kristallnacht is is coming up in late 38 all ah, right um right. but but yeah the attitude doesn't really change what what prompted that conference and it was specifically to talk about you know the as they termed it the refugee crisis it was called by Roosevelt himself and was supposedly to you know to solve this or to address this refugee crisis and they were were very wary of even using the word Jew or Jewish in discussing this refugee crisis as, as if it was some sort of general you know refugee crisis affecting the whole world the spark for it, of course, was the was the Anschluss, the, the um the, the German annexation of Austria, which had happened in March. And large numbers of Jews, you know, in particularly in Vienna, but elsewhere in in Austria as well. And some Jews who had escaped from Germany into Austria in the pre you know in, in the previous sort of few years and had now been faced with the prospect of being annexed by that same you know, anti-Semitic racist regime. So there's this sort of, there is this crisis of Jewish emigration out of Austria. And the outside world, and this is kind of typified by the conference, the outside world is kind of wringing its hands and making all the right noises uh, and saying, well, isn't it dreadful? And yet doing precisely bugger all to alleviate the problem. So much so, as I said before, that they even don't want to acknowledge it as a Jewish problem, first and foremost. And they don't want to acknowledge that Nazi Germany is the is the um, the cause of this problem. So they're sort of very wary of you know using any sort of critical language of you know towards Berlin or anything like that. And I don't you know it's, it's quite remarkable. The, the whole intention of Evian seems to be to kind of kick the can down the road in the hope that it will eventually go away. You know it was a big conference with lots of representatives of all you know a lot of states around the world. And they all lined up essentially to say, well, you know, we can't take any more Jews or any Jews because of X, Y and Z reasons. But we think that you other countries should right? because this is a real problem. And we think you should take. And then the other countries stand up and say, well, we can't take Jews because ABC problems. So we think someone else should. Right. So it's just lining up uh, representative after representative, basically explaining why they can't do anything about the problem and kicking the can down the road. So nothing is done in the end. And it's quite, you know, we've got to recognise that the Holocaust itself has, of course, not started yet, right? And to be fair to those representatives at Evian, they can't really foresee it. We, We know, we know 2020 hindsight, we know what happened, you know, barely two and a half years later, we know the Holocaust is then underway, 1941, and so on, you've got the sort of the beginnings of of systematic industrialized killing but they couldn't have foreseen that to be fair to them but it is it is still symptomatic of this sort of general outside world but particularly western attitude which is that well the jews are you know it's kind of someone else's problem let's just kick the can down the road and hope that it will go away and that was typified at Evian, and it's typified later on as well um at a second conference in 1942 believe it or not at bermuda where essentially the same outcome is arrived at. So what I wanted to do by using that as my opening chapter was to kind of demonstrate that the outside world, and particularly the Western outside world, was not sympathetic to the Jewish problem. And I think this is important because, in you know, with the benefit of hindsight, and we tend to have, everyone has a sort of slightly rosy view of their own role in history, I think, to some extent, maybe with the... With the exception of the Germans, but everybody else. Right. So I think we kind of assume that, well, you know, the Western world would have done something to save the Jews in the Holocaust, if only they'd known what was going on. Right. So then it becomes a question of when did they know, which is something else that I address in the book. But I I wanted to make the point that actually the outside world Maybe it wasn't actively hostile, but it was certainly pretty indifferent to Jewish suffering. And even once the war's underway, you know you still have lots of lots of bureaucratic obstacles put up um, from various organizations that you'd think were you know higher minded than that, like the US. State Department, for example, um, that are putting obstacles up to any to really any sort of um, measures that would help Europe's Jews. So I really wanted to use that to illustrate that the outside world is not kind of waiting in the wings desperate to help it's more or less actively indifferent to the Jewish plight. So I think that throws up into sharp relief those that actually do try and do something concrete and real to assist the Jews in, in, once the Holocaust is underway.
1: But tragically, it's such a small number of people who do help. But uh, do you think it's the 1930s, it really just show, if you add, it, add in appeasement of Nazi Germany, mm. it, it was a real breakdown of moral leadership in the mid to late
0: 1940s yes I think yeah I mean if you if you describe it like that if you rope it in with appeasement I'm always a little bit wary of throwing throwing appeasement uh and with it Chamberlain under the bus because I think in political and strategic terms you know he was a man of his time and I think it was a policy of its time and you and it and it was and it was fundamentally rational the problem was it was it was assuming that Hitler was a rational actor as well but Hitler wasn't a rational actor. That was the problem. So, you know, the, the best thing about you can say about appeasement is that they ended it and they ended it fairly swiftly once they realized that this was not a rational actor that they were dealing with uh, after Munich. So, you know, maybe that could have come earlier. But, you know, appeasement itself was not fundamentally a, an irrational or or I would argue even a wrong policy. Um, It's just that it was being directed at the wrong the the wrong subject you know Nazi Germany would not be appeased did not want to be appeased did not want to be satisfied so I'm always a little bit wary with that but I but I kind of agree with the drift of your question that there is a lack of there is a a failing of moral leadership here and you see that I mean I I I was surprised if I've been asked before I did some press with this I had an interview by by a Polish um, press outlet and they said what you know what surprised you when you wrote this book and I can't I you learn when you when you put these books out that after a couple of months, you've been asked every question under the sun and the answer is already there. But that one, because it was an early an early interview, I actually hadn't thought and I, and I sort of thought for a minute. And it was that, it was that the West, the outside world, the West in, in, in shorthand, was actively indifferent to this, even up until, you know, 43, 44. You know, there are State Department memos going around, which I cite in the book, who are actively talk, you know, talking about this passport scheme, which we're going to come on to and saying, oh, we don't like that at all. That's not, you know, we shouldn't allow people to benefit from fraudulent, from, uh, you know, illegal activity. They're trying to save lives, for God's sake. You know, how kind of bureaucratically small minded you have to be in 1944 to be saying things like that in the State Department in Washington. Right? It's quite, I found that quite astonishing. And I still do. Um, so again, it, it sort of flags up this idea that the outside world really, if it wasn't indifferent, it was actively hostile. You know, it was kind of really quite a quite a serious problem. And I think we we misunderstand that aspect of it when we look back and we think of the Holocaust. We think of ourselves nobly trying to, you know, tr- wanting to help but not being able to for different reasons. But that, that really isn't the case.
1: Yeah, and I'd like to talk a little bit more about the detail around Western government's during the war when they do know a little bit more but it's really the invasion of poland that and and you've written obviously in great detail about the invasion of poland in your last book first to fight but but really it's the experience of poland which is almost unique among amongst occupied well actually i'm I'm sort of hesitant to, to use such strong language because I, I obviously russia ex- experiences terrible treatment from nazi germany when yeah, they're yeah. during invasion yeah, yeah, yeah. but but poland sort of carved into these this sort of two sections north and western poland and then the central government which yeah, is a the, sort the of, general
0: government yeah the
1: yeah. general government sorry the general government yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: so Poland just partitioned i mean this you know um uh, as listeners will know from from first to fight, Poland is partitioned by the Germans and the Soviets in 1939. Um, it's been called the fourth partition because you know um, Moscow, Berlin, and um, and Vienna had previously carried out three partitions of Poland in the 19- in the 18th century. Um, So it's often described as the fourth partition. So Poland basically is wiped off the map in 1939 again. As you said, the north and the west is sort of hived off and annexed direct to the Reich. That becomes German territory, and they ship out anyone essentially who isn't German. And the eastern half is is taken directly by the Soviets and is annexed to the Belarusian and Ukrainian uh, Soviet republics. And essentially that border was restored in 1944, so that's still the same border now. That's the western border of Ukraine and and, uh, Belarus. And the middle bit, which is sort of... ironically, or appropriately, sort of teardrop shaped bit in the middle, it was called the general government, which, which, you know, has Warsaw at the top, and then Krakow at the bottom as part of that teardrop. And that was wholly under German control, it wasn't independently run by the Poles, it became a racial dumping ground. So that's where ultimately they wanted to, you know, deport all of the Jews into in the short term prior to their extermination. And they deported a lot of Poles into that territory as well. So that, as I said, became a sort of German-controlled racial dumping ground. And that's where where a lot of those sort of worst atrocities of the Holocaust and of the German occupation of Poland, which are two separate but related things, take place. I mean, Poland, the German occupation of Poland was one of the cruelest in occupied Europe. I think, we again, it's one of these misconceptions is that German occupation re- regimes were sort of similar across the board. They weren't. If you were in France or if you were in somewhere like Denmark, you know, it was a very light touch because the Germans actually kind of respected the um, the French and the, du- and the Dutch or the Danes as being as being sort of fellow fellow civilized Germanics or or, or 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 adjacent to being Germanics. The Poles were seen as you know one up one up the racial hierarchy from the Jews. They were they were completely expendable. And worse than that, the Poles had also opted to resist in nineteen thirty nine, which you know to the to the Nazi mind was. Adding insult to injury, so the the occupation regime against the Poles is extremely harsh and extremely cruel. I usually I use an example of the book of the massacre at Wawa in 1939, Christmas 39, uh, where two uh, German gendarmes are are uh, shot by by Polish criminals in a bar, and in response, 100 I think it was 115 Poles, had, you know Polish men are simply rounded up on the street and taken out and shot, and that was considered that was considered at the time as the the humane option because i think every, every every other prisoner that they rounded up was let go i mean it's the brutality of the german occupation of poland itself is almost indescribable it's no quarter given no quarter expected it's absolutely brutal so with you've got to understand again polish responses to the holocaust which sort of happens within that same within that same space and within that same milieu because half of the holocaust dead are Polish Jews, of course, right? That's another thing we tend to forget. So the Holocaust, to a large extent, is happening in and around that sort of brutal atmosphere for, for ordinary Poles. So that, that has to be understood in terms of gauging the Polish response to the Holocaust as well. So I try and there's a lot in the book that I try and give context to all of this to explain this sort of background not only in terms of what the, what the outside world knows and when and how that how that information comes out which is very very interesting, but how you know Polish responses to the Holocaust are kind of are kind of forming at the time as well because they're also in a very very difficult situation
1: exactly that's exactly the kind of context that well that's where we get our forges and Alexander um, Laura yeah I was hoping you'd help me out with the pronunciation yeah. there the, the ambassador in Switzerland. Yeah. It's in that context that he begins in quite small numbers to start with, isn't it? Yeah,
0: yeah. It's interesting because it does sort of. Well, it very much evolves. It's not. I think we often think, you know, when when you see an event like this, you imagine that you know this was a group of six um, plotters, if you like, or conspirators, and um, three of them are career diplomats. They're Polish diplomats in Switzerland. Three are career diplomats. One is Polish local staff. And then two are Jewish activists, um, one of Polish, well, both of Polish extraction, but one of whom was, you know, technically Polish. So there's a very, very strong Polish element to this. But they're working in Switzerland. And I think we often imagine with things like this that they sort of got together in a smoky room and they said, Right, chaps, the Holocaust is happening. You know, what are we going to do about it? We've got to do something to help. And then and then sort of thrash out a plan over, over sort of, you know, a bottle of port and some cigars that really isn't how this works. It's very, very organic. It come, Hopefully it comes across in that way, that it was completely organic, that there were other rescue operations that were kind of going on at the same time, or previous to it. There's particularly one called, by a chap called Sugihara, who was the Japanese consul in Kaunas in Lithuania in 1940. And Lithuania became one of those places that Polish Jews escaped to after that, as I said, partition of Poland. Because they didn't want to live necessarily in the in the Soviet zone, so they tended to go north into Lithuania, where which was then still nominally independent, and in a, as a way of trying to you know trying to escape Soviet rule, to try and wait out the war if they could, and then when the Soviets then decide to annex Lithuania, which they do in the summer of 1940, then all of those Polish Jews and as well as Lithuanian Jews kind of go oh shit right okay we have to get out of here right. So they, there's this plan is hatched that they, that Sugihara will give them Japanese visas so that they can go across the Soviet Union, eastward, entry into Japan. There's a transit visa to Japan is what he's giving out. And then they can get on somewhere else out of there. Usually, what was usually given was Curacao of all sort of places. Curacao was given as the end destination. But because that was how the bureaucracy worked, you had to have an end destination, you had to have tra- transit visas to cross Japan and so on. Nowadays, we, with you know the free travel that we tend to enjoy, we almost forget that this is this was the nature of the beast, you know, 80 years ago. You had to have the right paperwork to get into a country, never mind get across it and get out of it at the other side. So all of that stuff, you know, not only just passports, but but everything else as well. So they were doing that. Again, assisting Polish Jews. There's a strong sort of Polish element to that story as well. So the the people in Bern, my my Wadosh group in Bern would have known about this and it's and there's proof that they knew about it. So in the in the um spring of forty one, you know they've got Jews then coming to them and saying, "Well, we've heard about this, you know this now closed exit route. How about you do something like that?" so there's there's these sort of rumors, and then there's another you know the the honorary consul that they're using who is a a, a Swiss solicitor, local solicitor who's Honorary Consul of Paraguay. He'd been distributing visas in 1938 around the Anschluss crisis. So it's very organic how this all comes together and the idea begins to form. It's initially very, very piecemeal. And then as the outside world, you know, particularly as the Holocaust gets going, and this is why the wider context of how the Holocaust develops was so important to the narrative. Um, the, the more you know, Jews in the ghettos of occupied Poland and elsewhere, Begin to get an inkling of what their fate might be, that this is, you know, they're not going to be able to sit this one out. This is this is existential. Um, then they, you know, they write letters to to you know any contacts they have, get us passports, get us out of here, whatever it is. And and it sort of begins this drip-drip turns into something like a tsunami. Um, and it at some point, and I again I describe it in the book, they sort of get together, my my conspirators, as it were, they get together and say, well. What are we going to do? Right. Because this is getting serious and we're getting so many requests. So how are we going to manage this? And that, with that, effectively, this operation is born and they begin um, really a quite systematic kind of cottage industry of of forging Latin American passports, mainly Paraguayan, um, using this this tame honorary consul. He's the one that is paid, actually. He's the only one that makes any money out of it. Um, he's paid quite a handsome amount of money per passport. And um, he's Swiss isn't he working he is for a Swiss, the,
1: yeah. uh, as sort of nominated by the Paraguayan government to assist him. Yeah in so he's of... a,
0: he's a Swiss um local um actually a former diplomat he's quite a shadowy figure um I was desperate to try and p- try and find a picture of him for the yeah. I couldn't do so which was really annoying his name was Rudolf Hugley so he was a local Swiss barrister former diplomat and or lawyer rather than barrister and yeah, it was just, you know, norm, the normal sort of person that they tend to use as honorary consuls, where they don't have necessarily diplomatic staff. They use local, trustworthy, in inverted commas, trustworthy individuals to act in their stead. So he was doing that and he was doing it. He had done it for many years and he was just producing, you know, uh, Paraguayan documents, passports, and these other things called promesas, which is a sort of a lesser thing, which basically is a letter an official letter that says, you know, Bill Smith is recognised as a citizen of Paraguay, right? And it was much cheaper and it didn't require photographs. and It didn't require all of the sort of the stamps and all the rest of it. But it was considered to be a much, you know, much less impressive document than having an actual passport. But, you know, in, in many cases, needs must. So they used him and they, and it's reckoned, you know, it was, it was estimated in early 44 by one of the group, they reckoned that they had produced um, identity documents for 10,000 people. Um, and, that's and how did they get by, them?
1: Sorry to interrupt well, you there, Roger, but they they sort of posted them to people. Yeah, in many in the ghettos, instances, it was they? still
0: possible to some extent to post stuff. Otherwise, it went by courier or through the sort of the underground network. I mean, the postal system kind of still worked. It's quite bizarre, um, even into
1: the ghettos. Uh,
0: to some extent, I mean, the, 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 there's a there's a difference between those areas that were annexed direct to the Reich. So somewhere like somewhere like Wuj, what the Germans called Litzmannstadt. Was annexed direct to the reich so there the postal service kind of worked more or less unhindered right so you could post something to woods and in expectation it would actually get there and the same thing with benjin there's a place called benjin which is down in in upper silesia now uh, not far from auschwitz actually and that was a big jewish center which was also annexed direct to the reich so you could send normal mail into somewhere like benjin and there was a ghetto in Benzin. You could send normal mail there within reasonable expectation it would arrive. Much sketchier trying to get things into somewhere like the Warsaw ghetto because of interception by the Gestapo, just things getting robbed, whatever it was. Um, so that's much more difficult. But they did try, or or you could use couriers, or, or you could use the sort of networks through the under through the Polish underground as well. Um, so there are ways and means, depending on where you want to want to get this stuff to. So yeah, they you know that that side of it were not generally too much of a problem. But, you know, it sounds counterintuitive, but postal systems, to some extent, still kind of work.
1: And so I just wanted to drill into the knowledge side of things, because yeah. the group in Switzerland sort of gets inklings and gets news coming through of the Holocaust in sort of late, towards late 41, really, don't they? Maybe not. Yes. That, yeah, that's when so they, it,
0: it, The Holocaust proper is only really going in the autumn of 41, to be fair. I mean, it, it, there is there is sort of piecemeal persecution and executions of Jews and massacres and so on, even in even in September 39, as I've written about before. But the real, you know, if you're going to define the Holocaust as the kind of systematic, um, even industrialized slaughter almost, almost of the Jews. But certainly that word systematic is important. Hmm. then really it's the it's the autumn of 41 it coincides to a large extent with operation Barbarossa so that's when they start this sort of you know the systematic rounding up and execution of Jews on the eastern front and beyond and in that 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 area of eastern Poland which has been occupied by the by the Soviets for two years so as they as the Germans move through that you've got the Einsatzgruppen behind them basically rounding up anyone that looks at them askance but especially Jews Taking them out, you know, outside of town, you know, digging pits and shooting them. This is the systematic, you know, uh, execution of Jews, and that. So that's really the beginning of the Holocaust proper. So already that autumn, um, you know, piecemeal reports of this are are sort of dribbling out, you know, to the Western world and being talked about in in Polish underground circles as well. So there was one of the great sort of intelligence sources on this. Was the intelligence reports to the Polish underground? You know, Polish, and again, this was an important strand of the story. I needed to to um, explain how the Polish underground formed. You know, what its purpose was, what its re- relationship to the Polish government in exile in London was, and so on. So they were they were one of the main sources of this intelligence, but it is necessarily piecemeal. So they will hear, for example, through the grapevine. You know, there was a massacre up at such and such. You know, four hundred people killed. Another five hundred people killed so at such and such a place. And they would feed this out, but they're not. They're not yet in a position where they can see the bigger picture. So that that takes more time. That takes into you know, 1942, for example, before people are beginning to put two and two together and add and get four. Well,
1: quite a significant date in in 42 is is early on in twenty on the 20th of January. You get the Vance conference, uh, chaired by I think by Reinhard Heydrich. Yeah, and this is i guess this sort of bureaucratic machinery being sort of agreed and cleared by the the german state effectively isn't it
0: yeah it, it's often it's often described as as you know sort of the smoking gun in a way which is not entirely correct because the the Holocaust is already happening on the ground. So those orders have already gone out to some extent. You know, whether there is a smoking gun, of, you know, a Hitler document that's signed with it, you know, with his signature saying, you know, this is what we're going to do. I don't think there is. I think well, the
1: actually- camps are a smoking gun, really, aren't they?
0: Yeah, but it's I mean, it's much more organic than that. Most of the camps, actually, where I mean, the first one, the first one into operation, actually doing you know systematic killing of Jews is Helmner, out to the west of Warsaw. Um, Where they use gas vans, particularly again, which I described, which is rather, it's a horrible passage. Uh, That's one that sort of stays with me, that description of how the gas vans operated and how they were cleaned out and so on, which I hadn't really, I found that Eyewitness account, which is really quite harrowing.
1: Yeah, I've Um, just been reading that section
0: yeah it is um it is quite quite gruesome so that was that's already in operation late 41 the ma- the main push really is it coincides with with Hadri's death actually in the in the summer of 42 which again i described that link because they you know the nazis in their sort of twisted logic they see that as you know Hadric's death is a is a blow struck against nazism so a them, particularly on, painful death we should mention and a, yes well yes Yes, joyously, absolutely painful death. Mm. But they they interpret that as a sort of a, struck, a, a blow struck against Nazism. And, you know, the only people that could possibly be striking that blow would be the World Jewish Conspiracy, right? So the Jews have to pay. That's the logic. So they do step up, you know, all of those when they set up the extermination camps to exterminate Polish Jews in later 42 and 43. The operation is called Operation Reinhardt. You know the link is as explicit as that. You know this is revenge for what you people did. No, it wasn't Jews who killed him. This is—they see it in terms of this grand conspiracy. So this is revenge for 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 killing Hydrich, right? So between late '42 and early '43, that's where it really kicks into gear. Um, but all, as I said, uh, the outside world is piecing this together using a lot of that. Polish underground intelligence has been gathered and people like Karski, the great Karski, acting as a courier, bringing this stuff out to the West and telling the world, which he did, you know, enormous personal cost, enormous bravery. And the West really knows by the, at the end of 42, you know, we have enough information and enough context that we can put this together and they do. And again, this is an important part of the book was to trace that, that development of, of knowledge getting out because it informs what everything that follows. Yes. Diplomatic wrestles around around recognition of these passports, for example.
1: Yeah, which is painful. um, Yeah,
0: absolutely. So they're producing passports between 41 and the end of 43, effectively, at which point they're really being shut down. I mean, they kind of they kind of shut it down the end of 42, effectively, but then they do continue. Um, but they're being shut down. They're being investigated by the Gestapo. The Swiss police are clamping down on them at the behest of the Gestapo. And they're being, you know, the Germans are trying to infiltrate them and all of this sort of thing. They start, they actually arrest the members of the the Wadosh group to try and pressure them into stopping. That doesn't work. So they go after the honorary consuls, and the honorary consuls are then removed from the scene. So that means that the, the operation effectively breaks down. Uh, in 43. And then from then on, you know, for the last two years of the war, effectively, what you have is a sort of extended diplomatic wrestle with the outside world kind of, div- well, I'll say divided, but the Poles, the Polish diplomatic circles, and people like Wadosh in Switzerland, and, and the Jewish aid agencies, kind of contacting anyone that will listen and saying, look, you know, we've produced all of these passports. As I said, 10,000 individuals. They are currently being held in German camps, right? So the 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 gist was that it kind of it it, it poked having one of these passports sort of poked a stick in the uh, a spanner in the works of the Holocaust mechanism. An important part of the mechanism, of the Holocaust, was to was to delegalize the individual right, so that you had no citizenship, you had no, you know, there was no one that would speak for you, You basically in a position where you, 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 and they could do whatever they wanted with you, right, which doesn't sound that significant to the to the modern mind, but it was, it's an important part of the process from the German perspective. And if one of these individuals who's about to be deported to Auschwitz, for example, waves a Paraguayan passport, and says, well, hang, hang on, I'm a Paraguayan, right, then they go, oh, God, know, yeah, another one. <laughs> But they pull you out of the line and they send you to, of all places, Bels- Belsen, you know, particularly bad reputation amongst British readers because it was one of the main or the one of the first camps that the British troops actually liberated. And it was horrific at the end of the war. But earlier on in the war, it was used as sort of a hybrid. It had various subcamps within it and it had, you know, various regimes within those sub camps. And one of them, one of those regimes was, was to was to house what they called exchange Jews, which was foreign Jews who were being kept for a possible exchange with Germans held abroad okay so your man who you know is in the warsaw ghetto for example holds up his paraguay spurious paraguayan passport and says no hey you can't do this to me i'm a paraguayan he gets pulled out of the line he gets sent to belsen and kept there actually in reasonable conditions at the beginning, uh, in any case, kept in reasonable conditions, not forced to work, for example, you know, the food was relatively okay at the beginning. And he's he's basically surviving there, expecting at some point some exchange for Germans abroad. That was the logic from a German perspective. So that sort of two-year wrestle with the polls saying you have to do anything possible to persuade the Latin American governments to publicly recognize these documents. Otherwise, these people are going to be killed. Logical answer, right? They saw it as a humanitarian operation. Wadosh himself, in arguing for this, said, This is a humanitarian operation. We're trying to save as many people as possible. I quote, right? Um, the outside world, particularly the Americans, not so much. They're not really on the side. They're saying, Well, you know, we're not sure that we should allow this to happen. This is fraudulent activity. You know, they're worried about espionage, that anyone that might get exchanged out to the outside world is actually a German spy, all this sort of thing. So they're really, and they're, they're actually pushing the Latin American governments not to recognise them. So this one strand of the second half of the book is that, is that wrestle, which I think is, is heart-rending, because the polls are sat, trying to explain the situation, what they've done, and saying, just publicly say you will recognise these passports. And Latin Americans egged on by the Americans, are basically saying, no, we're not going to. And then in the process of that wrestle, you know, the Germans kind of get wind of what's going on. They hear that the recognition is not going to be forthcoming. And in batches of, you know, 2,000, they send them all to Auschwitz and they're slaughtered. I mean, it's heart-rending. It's It's absolutely heart-rending.
1: I completely, it really is devastating reading. And I wanted to ask you, because as you've pointed out, the Western governments are aware of the Holocaust by late forty two. What do you think the response between that and the end of the war? How do you think I mean, I guess overall, how do you think Western governments responded? I mean obviously in in the case of these these passports being issued out of Switzerland they they were obviously fell short on that on that side of things. but overall, yeah. how do you think Western governments behave? Um,
0: I would uh, in in general, uh, badly. I think the only word for it is badly. They were, they were mouthing, they were mouthing platitudes. There's very little thought given to what was possible. There was lots of thought given to what wasn't possible. The general attitude was one of, again, it's kicking the can down the road, but the intention is is a seemingly plausible one, which is that, well, our priority has to be to win the war. You know, we save the Jews by winning the war quicker. And anything that stops that happening or gets in the way of that victory delays that, that victory. So that's that's a bad thing. Right. So they even there's even discussion of sort of you know, dropping food supplies into into the camps, for example, which is dismissed because, well, why should we feed the Nazis prisoners for them? I mean, again, it's quite logical. But, you know, there was perhaps a possibility there of something that could have been done. So generally it's they're obsessed with what can't be done rather than what could be done. I mean, this was one, this passport scheme was one opportunity where they could have got behind it, pushed it, and actually, I think saved, honestly, I think saved thousands of people uh, in the process. But they didn't for bureaucratic reasons. I think to some extent, you have to say probably at one level, anti-Semitic reasons as well. You know, it's the Jews again. It's the, you know, they're a pain in the ass. They're permanently complaining about everything. That's the kind of attitude um, a lot of the early accounts of the Holocaust were dismissed in Western capitals as being as being Jewish hysteria, you know. So there is this sort of um, latent, I mean, it's not the same anti-Semitism as the Nazis are expressing, but it's still there and it's still, you know, it's a roll of the eyes and it's how oh, it's the Jews again. So there's a degree of anti-Semitism in there without question. But I don't think the Western, Western governments, you know, acquitted themselves very well at all. A lot of it is, is platitudinous. Uh, obsessed with what can't be done. You know, there's a couple of exceptions. The War Refugee Board set up by Roosevelt in 44 actually tried to cut through a lot of this, uh, this sort of bureaucratic sclerosis uh, in the US and actually did try and, you know, look at what was possible. So there are some exceptions but generally uh, and this is what they're this is what the Wadosh group were up against as well was this kind of it's almost like the old soviet nyet culture you know you just say no to, and if you say no enough times then people go away stop asking and it's that's it was the same sort of attitude to a large degree um, so yeah i don't think they acquitted themselves very well at all
1: and where's the historiography on this roger obviously your book is is very important on what happened and you know our leaders in the west we, we all we all lord Winston Churchill, of course, but this is this is a, a bit of a weak spot. Yeah, I mean, we Churchill, read a lot. of Is there a lot of books that are out there about this kind of thing? I mean, we have uh, seen more and more now. I think, aren't we? Yeah, I mean,
0: Churchill must be said was you know was a great sort of philo-semite which is an unusual thing in this in this uh, this time. So you know, he's one that that deserves honorable mention. But that didn't really that didn't really change much. It didn't move much. I mean, again, the British response is one of. is is largely platitudinous unfortunately where the historiography is uh, there's there's a bit on this i mean this is talked about you know there's a great book by richard brightman which came out probably 20 years ago on the western western knowledge and western responses to the holocaust so that in that sense there's nothing particularly new about that but i think where i think there's a couple of points that i think is that are quite new that my book goes into which is that which is I suppose looking at the Polish side of this, because Poland is not generally acknowledged in in sort of holocaust Holocaust studies circles. Poland is seen generally as part of the problem rather than part of the solution. And there's various reasons for that. I mean, it had, you know the the interwar, um, relations between the Polish state and its large Jewish minority were not good. There was a lot of popular anti-Semitism in Poland. I mean, anti-Semitism is a pretty much universal disease. Arguably still is to some extent, but certainly was back in the first half of, of last century. Popular antisemitism in, Poland, anti-Semitism in Poland as bad, if not if not worse, than elsewhere. So it, it did have a very checkered record in that respect. Once you've got the German occupation regime, and as I said before, the sort of the hardship that it imposed on Poles and Jews alike, that sort of metastasizes a lot of those sentiments. So you you do have instances of ordinary Poles, you know, dobbing in local Jews who are in hiding, for example, to the Germans, whether it's out of you know personal gain, venal motives, or or for anti-Semitic anti-Semitic reasons. But you also get huge numbers of Poles who save Jews uh, at en- enormous personal risk as well. You know, Poland was uh, occupied. Poland was the only country where you had the death penalty for assisting Jews. Yeah, that doesn't happen anywhere else in occupied Europe. So um, it is a very mixed record that Poland has. And for the record, again, we should say that Poland has the largest number of righteous, the righteous among the nations, um, of any other country. So you know, there's there's points of light in this dark story as well. Um, And and my story is one. You know, we you can't use that to gainsay everything else and say, well, you know, the Poles were on the side of the Angels because some of them weren't. But it's it's part of that very complex narrative and that very complex tapestry of, of, of that history. You know, these diplomats that I write about, they were on the side of the angels. They were do- doing this because it was the thing that the right thing to do. It was a humanitarian operation. They want as they as Radosh said, we want to save as many people as possible. Um that needs to be part of the narrative, just as we condemn those that were on the other side of history and and you know, condemned and betrayed not betrayed Jews to the Nazis for whatever reason. Um, it's only by understanding the two sides that we get a full picture of the history. Um so it shouldn't be used to sort of gainsay the, the other side, but it's it's an it's a very important uh uh part of a of a wider and much more complex narrative. And I think a lot of holocaust study has traditionally been sort of to coin to coin a phrase rather apt and rather rather clumsy phrase but it's sort of been ghettoized it's 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 unwilling to look at you know what the occupied german occupation regime was like for ordinary poles for example so we'll talk about what it was like for jews and it won't look at you know why didn't more Jews help them. For, more more Poles help them, for example, because it doesn't necessarily want to to look at the, the the difficulties suffered by ordinary Poles. So to look at this in the round, actually, I think helps us understand the mechanics of the Holocaust a bit better. If we, if you know, if we understand the difficulties of of life in occupied Poland for ordinary Poles, then it sheds a light on perhaps why some of them were unwilling to help help Jews. Having said that, as I said, I mean an awful lot of them did, but still. You know, that, that it's an important part of that wider context. And that's something I think the historiography has traditionally missed.
1: Well, it's now got your book, which is a really, really fantastic read, Roger. And then the numbers in the epilogue, it's it's really interesting you going through the numbers of passports issued as compared with how effective it was after we have yeah. got rid of all that diplomatic wrangling you've been talking about.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, but still, it's an extraordinary achievement that the Wadoj group managed to
0: i think so i mean the, the estimate at the moment is 800 plus survivors with wadosh passports uh and i, and I think you know this was sort of hidden in the archives it was, it was more or less forgotten for most of the intervening sort of 80 years and i think i hope anyway i hope that this book coming out which is the first book on it really certainly out in English, in the English language. I think, I, I hope, I really hope that this will bring more to light. You know, if there are other families out there of Jewish extraction who have somewhere, you know, a Jewish, a Jewish ancestor who survived the Holocaust, there might be within their sort of narrative this mystical Paraguayan passport and nobody knew where it came from or, or who asked for it. Or, but that was the thing that saved their life. And that's not being dramatic. That is how it was for many people. But they never questioned it. They never knew where it came from. They never knew that You know, if that's part of anybody's story, the, the overwhelming chances are that that passport came from the Wadosh group in Switzerland. Um, and of course, operational security at the time meant that Wadosh and his team, they didn't publicize what they were doing. So if you were the recipient of one of those passports, you didn't necessarily know where it come from. It just became, you know. Oh, it came from so and so. You know, whoever it was, whoever your contact was, you didn't know who the other the other uh, links in the chain were. So, it's quite possible that there are many thousands of people out there who have one of these passports in their family history, and they don't even think about it. They don't have a clue about it, and they and you know they they don't know that that's the reason that they survived. So, I'm kind of hope I'm really hopeful that that um, as a result of this book you know, you'll we'll get some more to come forward and if, if we can add more names to the list of, of survivors.
1: Uh, I hope so, Roger. Fantastic. Thanks so much for this. It's been absolutely fascinating. The book is The Forgers and the publication date, I think is, is it? 10th, the, of, 10th of August. 10th of August. So yeah. when this is out, listeners, it's already been published. So head on down to your local bookshop.
0: Wonderful. Thank you, Ollie.
1: Thanks, Roger. Thank you for listening. If there are any listeners wondering how that Paraguayan passport found its way into your family, please do get in touch and I can put you on to Roger. As I said at the start, plenty more episodes to come on fantastic history, so please do share with friends. But in the meantime, thank you and good night.